Well, welcome and happy Father's Day. And I want to deal with one thing right out of the gate, and that is those of you that God has not blessed with children, those of you who are women, and those of you who are not married. And I want to tell you that it is a modern habit to sacrifice the normal for the abnormal. And so there's a lot of pressure on preachers today to go and, and, and give a sermon that has nothing to do with fatherhood and nothing to do with men, that's just sort of generic parenting and really not parenting, but just sort of the cosmic kind of, you know. In other words, to do everything we can to keep those of you who are not married or single, those of you who are married and don't have children from feeling the pain of the absence of God's blessing. And I'm not going to do that. Because the truth is, every one of you who is a man can be a father. There are infinite numbers of ways for you to be a father when your children are out of the home, if God hasn't given you children, if you're not even married. And you know what those ways are. You know that every judge, every congressman, every professor, every teacher, every Sunday school teacher, every elder, every deacon, every policeman, every guard, every one of these positions is a position of fatherhood. To any degree that you are a man and that you take responsibility for others and give yourselves up for them, you are a father. So don't feel that if you don't have flesh and blood children that you're somehow a defective father. You're not. And I want to use as an illustration at the beginning of today, a man who had a great influence on our daughter, Michael. And his name is John DeWalt. John DeWalt has never had children. When I was young, my parents gave me a responsibility one summer of memorizing Isaiah 53. And being a typical boy, I didn't want to do it. Probably the only boy here that would want to do it if his dad told him to do it is Elliot Huck. Right? Elliot was just born holy, right? (laughs) Actually, Elliot was born a Pharisee. That's what Elliot is. And I only say that because that's what his dad told me once, years ago. And I love Elliot and I respect him. And he just struggles with his sin the way the rest of us do. But if there were a boy here who would naturally want to memorize Isaiah 53, it would be Elliot Huck. All right, Elliot. Right? Am I right? Have you memorized Isaiah? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So my parents gave me a job one summer of memorizing Isaiah 53, and I didn't want to do it. And I beat my head against the wall of Isaiah 53 that summer. If you go into my office and look in my glass bookcases, you'll find an old Schofield reference Bible. And if you open it up to Isaiah 53, you'll find that the pages there are dirty. And that's because I spent that summer with those pages open, not memorizing those pages, but open. And it came to the end of the summer and the ante began to go up. You know, my parents began to sort of make it clear that I was going to do this. And the spirit was Barely willing, but the flesh was completely weak. And so, finally, John DeWalt came out to go back to Wheaton College at the end of the summer, and he heard about the problem. Not married, 
no children. John was a father. And John took me down to the little DuPage River down Chick Road from our house. And first he took me skinny dipping. There was nobody around. It was fun. And then we lay on the bank of the stream and he helped me memorize Isaiah 53. And I finished it. Later, John was out with us in, at Christmas time in 1990. What would it have been? Michael, where are you? What year were you born? 1985? In 1985, John was at our house for Christmas. And Mary Lee gave birth to Michael on December 28th. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's absolutely hopeless. Um, and John heard about it. He was out at our house. Mary Lee gave birth in Wheaton. And uh, so John came in, and within, I don't know, maybe an hour or two, he was holding Michael in his arms. And a little bit later, he asked if he could be Michael's goddaughter, or godfather. <laughs> yeah. And so... Throughout Michael's life, she got regular letters from John. Every time he'd come and visit us, he would take her aside and spend time instructing her and asking her the condition of her heart. He did have you memorize scripture, did he not? Am I wrong on that? I I thought about asking you to come up and say all the things he did. But he had a tremendous impact on her, and scripturally, very clearly, a Christian impact, not a a vuncular impact, not not just sort of, well, I love you, and here's another nice gift. I mean, he did that stuff. Lots of nice gifts came to her, some she didn't even like. Um, But John had a godly Christian influence on Michael, so much so that I felt that my failures with Michael were wonderfully provided for through John Dewalt. Now, I start out the sermon this morning by saying this to you. Don't have a pity party if God hasn't given you children. Don't have a pity party if you're not married. Don't have a pity party if your kids are gone from your home. Don't resent me preaching on fatherhood today. This is Father's Day, and every man here can be a father. Now, having said that, let's open up to Malachi chapter 4. And I want you to look at what is the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament according to the Holy Spirit's will. It's this. Malachi 4, beginning with verse 4. The end of the Old Testament. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Some old texts of Scripture, Hebrew texts, have replaced verse 6 as being the end and have moved it up higher. Why do you think they do that? Well, they do that because they didn't want the Old Testament, the Word of God, to end on such a negative note. It is pretty negative, isn't it? 
and smite the land with a, what's the last word of the Old Testament? A curse. Now, we're all trained to think that this is typical of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's a nasty section of Scripture that you have to go through to get to the New Testament. That, again, God in the Old Testament was an ogre, and in the New Testament, he's a grandfather handing candy out. And so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty typical for the Old Testament. Curses. Smite. But in fact, this is a key verse to lead us from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Because what we find in the New Testament is that the same sort of curses are threatened in the New Testament as they are in the Old Testament. For instance, if you flip over to Matthew chapter 24, you'll find Jesus threatening curses. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. You can imagine somebody in London pointing out, you know, St. Paul's. You know, you can imagine somebody in Philadelphia's 10th Prez. Somebody in Hollywood, Hollywood Prez. You know, some of these beautiful glorious buildings and they pointed out the temple buildings to him and jesus said to them verse 2 do you not see all these things truly i say to you not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down what on earth what's that about you can imagine how nonplussed they were they felt like he'd taken a hat pin you know taking all the hot air out look at the glorious buildings not one stone will be left on top of another So this is the Jesus who brings everything good, and the Old Testament was everything bad. This is that Jesus. And then he says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen. You know, they've had the hot air taken out of them, and they're going, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am in the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Do you ever wonder as you read scripture how on earth we came up with this thing called evangelicalism? This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. What causes love to grow cold? Lawlessness. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, and as you go through this, 
You skip over to verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you don't know the day which your Lord is coming. And be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know. And then what does Jesus say? He says, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites in that place where there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so it's very clear that Jesus is just as intimidating and just as just as harsh, just as judgmental, just as dogmatic, just as authoritarian, just as threatening as the Old Testament. I mean, you can't fail to see this listening to that. This is Jesus. And if you go through the New Testament, you'll find again and again and again in the New Testament the warning of coming judgment. Jesus speaks more about hell than anybody else. And so if we go to the Old Testament, we see warnings of coming judgment. If we go to the book of Malachi, we see that the people are divorcing one another, that the people are not tithing, that... The land is filled with wickedness, and we see that that book ends with this threat. Us, I'll come, and I'll strike the land with a curse. We go to Jesus. We go to John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist about? Repent, for the kingdom of God is hand. What does it mean, the kingdom of God? It means the coming judgment. When God's authority, finally, nobody will oppose it, and those who do will be cast into the fiery hell. Now, what is Revelation about? Revelation is about the coming judgment. When eternally those who reject Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will be cast into a fiery hell. So now look at this few little verses, three verses, that make the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament and see that they're of a fabric with the entire text of Scripture. This is not something weird. This is not something that you should be surprised at. This is not something that your heart should struggle against but ultimately submit to. This is something that you should put your hope in. You should put your hope in the day when those who are in Christ will be found righteous and those who are out of Christ will finally be cast into hell. And you say, why would anybody look forward to that? And I say, because Scripture tells us that this is the character of God. Because as you get to know God, you will love His justice every bit as much as you love His mercy. You will love all the perfections, all the attributes of God. You won't find yourself being soft and effeminate and loving the maternal side of God and hating the paternal side of God. But God will be God. And therefore, the things he loves, you will love, and the things he hates, you will hate. This is what it means to be sanctified. This is what it means to be a Christian. The world defies God, and the world believes that God will never punish it for defying him. 
And Christians are often are complicit in the world's conspiracy. Christians often lie about the character of God. One of the clearest lies is all the Christians falling all over themselves to say that 9-11 was not God's judgment. The world hated the thought that God would judge America. And so Christians were easy, you know, very, very willing to jump on the bandwagon and assure them that that's not the God of, of Scripture. But on what basis exactly do we say that 9-11 is not God's judgment? Is it because our nation's righteous and so God wouldn't judge us? We export pornography all over the world. We kill our unborn children at a rate that's unbelievably large, 1.3 million a year. We don't honor our older parents. There is no natural affection. Divorce is rampant all over our land. The hearts of many have grown cold. The true word of God is not being preached in our churches. It's, it's, what's being preached is uh, peace, peace. We love money. We love our military might. We're proud. Anybody that looks at America knows what we are. Right? And it's patriotic for me to say this. A patriot looks at his nation accurately. And this is who we are. What many Christians have done is Christians have replaced the God of Scripture with the God of evolutionists. The God of evolutionists is, is, is entirely free to exist as long as he set everything in order and then departs. And so the God of the evolutionists is a God that's the, you know, sort of the blind watchmaker. You know, he, he put the mechanism together and, and, and now he's gone. And everything goes the way he decreed at the beginning, but he, he won't interfere. But can this be the God of Scripture? Can this be the God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Can this be the God that calmed the storms? The God that delayed the coming of sunset? The God who healed the man born blind? Can this be the God of Scripture? No. So all the things I just mentioned are good things, right? What about the death of all these kings that you just heard read to you and all their subjects in the land of Canaan at God's decree? Is that your God? Was that a judgment on the land? We hate the fact that God cleaned out Canaan. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God cleaned out Canaan because the wickedness of the land had finally reached its full point, its tipping point. And he wiped them out because of their wickedness. Now, what was their wickedness? Well, one of the principal wickednesses of Canaan was child sacrifice. The real amazing thing to Christians who know their Bibles today is not that 9-11 happened, but that 9-11 was so tiny. Many decades ago, Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, said, if God does not judge America soon, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's Billy Graham's wife. 
And so when we look at this verse at the end of the book of the Old Testament, what we see is that God is threatening judgment. If we look at Jesus, what we see is Jesus is threatening judgment. If we look at the New Testament epistles, we see the New Testament epistles are threatening judgment. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man that sows, that shall he also reap. The man that sows to his sinful nature will from his sinful nature reap destruction. We look at the book of Revelation. Hello! (laughs) The book of Revelation is unbelievably intense and awful. And we go to the very beginning, and God says to Adam, the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely what? Die. This is our God. The book of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. Now, look at 9-11. 9-11 is one more of a long list of God's merciful actions towards us in calling us to repentance. That's what it is. It's His judgment on us, and judgment always calls us to repent until the final judgment when it's too late. And you say, well, how can you say that? What about the Tower of Siloam? It fell and Jesus said that that wasn't judgment. And I say, no, he didn't. He said it was judgment. But he said, those of you that point and say that was God's judgment on nasty people, you flee the judgment. God's going to judge you worse. In other words, we use the Tower of Siloam as if it's an example of the fact that God doesn't do that kind of specific judgment anymore. But what Jesus says there is that if you, I tell you, if you don't repent, something even worse is going to happen to you. You say, well, yeah, but there were Christians in the buildings, the World Trade Center of 9-11. And I say, yes, if my father had been there and died, my message would be absolutely the same. It is God's judgment on us. You say, well, how could you say God judges by taking the lives of believers? I say, corporate accountability. It is often the case that innocent children suffer because of the sins of their fathers, right? Right? Now, why am I hammering this home? Because you have to kill your your evangelical God. He is not the true God. You have to kill the God that you've been fed, so many of you, from whatever the tripe is that you read. And you have to go back to Scripture and learn the nature of the true God. And the true God is holy. The true God is a consuming fire. The true God does judge people. The true God has not absented himself from this universe. The true God controls every crack of lightning, every thunder, every flood, every destruction, and every single negative thing that happens on this earth is under his authority. And you say, well, why didn't you say under his authority? Why didn't you just say he does it all? And I say, because God's agency in suffering and in evil is a mystery that Scripture does not open up to us. So I'm only saying what Scripture can say. Scripture doesn't explain to us how the God that created the universe can have created a universe where Adam could have sinned. And this is what Deuteronomy 29 says. These are the secret things of God that are not given to us to know. All right. But what we are to know is that God 
allowed Job to suffer and God allowed Satan to tempt him. And that God doesn't tempt anyone. Do you understand? Both of them are quotes of Scripture. So why am I pushing this issue? I'm pushing this issue because I want you to understand that God is pleased to use threats to cause us to be obedient and to be blessed. In other words, my whole goal in hammering home the concept of God's justice and his holiness and him being a consuming fire is so that you will then give yourself to obedience and you will escape the fire and you will escape the judgment and you will have all the blessings of earth put on you. Because look at how that verse comes at the end of Malachi 4. It comes after a command. Verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Now, in verse 6, it says he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And we see that if the hearts of the fathers are restored to their children, the hearts of the children of their fathers, that the land and the people will escape the curse of God and his smiting, his hitting us, his striking us, his judgment. And so it follows that if the hearts of the father aren't restored to the children and the hearts of the children aren't restored to the fathers, that God will smite the land and he will curse it, right? Can you see that in the verse? Okay. Now, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a sentimental connection between a dad and his children? Is that what this is about, that God wants us to love our sons and daughters, and God wants our sons and daughters to love us? Is that what this is about? Notice again what verse 4 says. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Who is Moses? Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He is the one that God used to give Israel the Ten Commandments. He is the father of Israel. Who are the other fathers of Israel? And maybe if I say the word patriarch, you'll understand what I'm talking about. The fathers of Israel are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Now you understand who the fathers are that will have their hearts restored to the children and who the children's hearts will find themselves turning to. It will be the fathers that God used to give his law to his people, principally Moses, who gave the Israelites the law of God. In other words, what it's saying here is either you turn back to your father Moses and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to all the godly men that came before you and give them your hearts and have them give you their heart, which is a heart of obedience to the word of God, or I will strike your land with a curse. Does that make sense? And so what we're really being exhorted to do today is to turn our hearts back to the godly fathers we have had and for the godly fathers to be able to communicate their hearts to us. 
not just any father. It's Moses and everyone who has walked in the path of Moses in obedience and knowledge of the word of God and the law of God. Now, again, our, our inclination is to think that this is simply not a New Testament message because the New Testament doesn't emphasize obedience. It emphasizes faith. But God is pleased to use secondary means for our redemption. And the secondary means he uses, principle among them, is us turning our hearts to our fathers and our fathers' hearts being communicated to us. The fathers who gave us the law and the character and the perfections of God. In other words, the end of the Old Testament is simply a reiteration, a repeating again of something that Moses said as the Israelites were on the edge of the promised land, about to come into the land of blessing. When he said this to them in Deuteronomy 11, he's speaking to the Israelites, he's their father, and he says, it will come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season the early and late rain that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore impress or fix these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain upon the earth. It's real clear, isn't it? This is really, really clear. What's going on here is that Moses says at the edge of the promised land, see these kings that died, the ones you just read about in Joshua, they all died because of their wickedness. Now, you're coming in. God's going to bless you. He's going to give you long life. He's going to make your cattle have calves. He's going to make you have lots of wine and lots of oil and a long life. He's going to give you all these blessings if you obey him and principally if you obey him by loving him. But, If you don't love him and if you don't obey him, here's what's going to happen. Your cattle will cast their calves. You're not going to have them producing good milk. You're not going to have your fruit trees producing fruit. You're not going to have oil. You're not going to have wine. And you're not going to have a long life. You're going to die. It's very clear. And then at the end of the Old Testament, the same thing is said. Give your hearts to Moses, give your hearts to the law of Moses, and you will live. But if you refuse to turn your hearts to your father, then this land will be struck with a curse. And the same thing is said by Jesus. The person that gets drunk and parties, instead of doing the work that God gave him, will be cast out of heaven into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But those that the master finds obedient and ready and persevering to the end, they will be saved. And so God, from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, commands obedience. And guess what? As we give ourselves to obeying His Word, we have faith in Jesus Christ, 
and the faith in Jesus Christ God uses to give us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we're saved. It's not our obedience that saves us. But if you don't obey, you don't believe. And so God is pleased to use secondary means. He's pleased to use the law as our tutor, our schoolmaster to Christ. The, the, The keeping of the law drives us to despair. We do the soul work we have to do. And finally, we realize we're hopeless and we look to Christ in faith. And then, having placed our faith in Jesus Christ, God is pleased day by day to sanctify us again with the law. He drives us to regeneration with the law, and then he drives us to heaven and glorification with the law of God. The law of God is the instrument he uses to accomplish the work that only he can do. And as he's pleased to use the law, so he's pleased to use fathers. And what is the father's job? Well, the father's job is to turn the children's heart back to the father, Moses, and to the law that Moses has put down. In other words, this command to tie on our forehead strap, on our arms, to have it on our doorposts, to teach our children the law of God is not obsolete. It's not, again, an Old Testament law. But this is... A law that is perpetually binding on the people of God. In other words, how on earth could a Christian father fail to give his son and his daughter the law of God? How could he do it? He'd have to be a monster because he desires the eternal death of his children if he doesn't give those children the law of God. And the Bible says that based on his instruction of his children, they will be blessed or cursed. Now, about this time, you're going, oh, man, this is very, very heavy and and like negative. And I'm going to say to you, "Okay, look, I'm your pastor for most of you. Right. And so last night, Mary Lee and I are lying in bed. It's been a wonderful day celebrating the marriage of Colin and Kara. And we went to the reception. During the reception, we, Mary Lee and I sat on the grass and talked to somebody for a long time. And so we didn't get to get over by the food, right? And so about halfway through us talking to this person, what happens? These two little blonde boys come over and they have three plates. And on the three plates are cake. And not just one cake, but a choice. I mean, how sweet. We didn't have to get up from the grass. We didn't have to break the conversation. Somebody was thinking about us and loving us. Now, do you think those little two toe-headed boys were the ones that were thinking about us and loving us? No, it was their parents. Which parent? The one that we gave birth to naturally or the one that came to us because of the godliness of his parents? I don't know whether it was Heather or Doug, but it was our grandson's. Then a little bit later, they come and they brought us two glasses of water and one of lemonade. Again, a choice. So Mary Lee and I are lying in bed last night thinking about the godly character of our children. And you know what Mary Lee and I thought to each other out loud? We thought to each other, you know, we're so glad that Heather learned the things we taught her when she was young. No. We sat there in bed and we thought, where on earth did she come from? God's goodness is just unbelievable. 
that we would have children that love God and that even love us. It's unbelievable, His kindness. So, if you do instruct your children, and if you're a pastor, and if you end up having long life, and and like lots of wine, lots of oil, and lots of fruit, and calves, right? What do you end up saying? Does anybody end up saying, look at what I, with my own hands, have done? It's the gift of God. Right? But if I were to tell you that there were a few things we did right... You'd believe me, right? And if I were to tell you that some of those few things we did right, God added his blessing to, and you can now see the fruit of those few things we did right, you'd be with me, right? In fact, if I were to say that some of the goodness that we see in our grandchildren is God's blessing on us for obedience, none of you would object to that, right? Anybody object to that? No. Okay, so if a father commits adultery on his wife, finds a new young woman, right? And if he shows up at the wedding of his daughter, and if his children all cry when he's there, and if his wife can't look at him, and if there's embarrassment everywhere, and I were to say to you that that's God's judgment on him, are any of you going to argue with me? No! The fact is, God makes a connection between our actions and blessings and curses. And it's not over in the New Testament. And God is pleased to use both threats and promises to cause us to do what we need to do with our children. Okay? That's not an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing. It's a cosmic thing. Anybody have any question why the baby boomers are so screwed up? It's because of their parents. Anybody have any question why there's so much father hunger in our land? Because of the baby boomers. Now, here's what the Bible says to you. And again, don't, you know, don't tell me that you're not a father, that you don't have children, that you're not married and all that. You can be a father. It's a question of faith. I don't have any children I can give you anymore except Taylor. But I did this week tell two of you to go ahead and discipline Taylor. I don't remember who you were. Was that you? Or no, that was David Carell. Yep. And somebody else. I don't remember who it was. But there are lots of children here that you can discipline. There are. Right? Doug, are you willing to have people in this church as an act of faith discipline your children? Please, he says. Okay? Now, here's what you need to do as dads. If you're willing to believe that God uses both scary things and nice things to motivate you to do what will assure the eternal life and the temporal blessings of your children and your grandchildren and any children you choose to take, here's what you need to do. You need to bind the Word of God on their forehead, on their arm, on the front door. You need to talk about it when you're in your car, when you're sitting at your table, You need to have it on the walls of your house. You need to have them memorize it. You need to fill your children with the Word of God. That's what you need to do. It's clear, right? I read it. You heard it. It's clear, right? The law of God. So any system of theology that tells you to forget the law of God, it's now grace, is a lie. God uses the law to lead you to grace. It is your tutor to grace. 
Now, how do you do this today? Well, one thing is, if you're going to talk about it when you're eating, you have to eat together, don't you? And you have to turn off the damned television. What my father called that huckster we invite into our living room. You have to turn it off. How can you instruct your children in the ways of God while that huckster is speaking? How can you instruct your children at a meal if you don't ever eat with your children? Right? Everybody with me? Got to eat with your children. Another thing is when you're riding in the car, sing hymns. I learned many, many hymns by heart. The alto part from my sister as we lay in the back of the station wagon with the rear seat folded down driving to Colorado or home to Philadelphia for summer camp. She'd teach me hymn after hymn. She'd sing the soprano, I'd sing the alto. Sing hymns. And by the way, what we sing are hymns. Memorize scripture. Every summer have a long section of scripture that your son or your daughter memorizes. It was Isaiah 53 one summer for me. I don't know what it will be for you, but do it. Memorize scripture. Have a reading curriculum for your children. Don't let school get in the way of their education. All right? Have a reading curriculum for them. Read Pilgrim's Progress. Read Taylor is, I think, finished Pilgrim's Progress this summer, and now he's going into a hiding place, right? So I got the first one. Meryl gets the second one. Who knows who will get the third one? You know, I completely understand why all of you want minivans that have DVDs for the children. I remember those scenes. Outside of the car with a child that wouldn't stop screaming mile after mile after mile. DVDs in cars are wonderful things. But they're not. Because all that allows you to do is abdicate your responsibility to instruct your children in one more huge segment of time where you have forced intimacy. And so, if you have a car with it, turn it off and talk about the things of God. Catechize your children. It's not hard at all to teach them the catechism. Do what I didn't do. We have a class that teaches our children the catechism, but I failed to catechize my children at home. Now, Michael, when I was bemoaning that one day, notice not correcting it, bemoaning it, Michael said to me one day, Oh, Daddy, you catechize us all the time. And love has made her blind. Those times in your living room when all you want to do is feed your mind that filth, teach your children the law of God by flipping the channel when that broad comes on. That chick, that well-endowed woman. In other words, don't let your children be taught by you to look at women's bodies. You think your children don't know what's going on in your mind? 
Better yet, close the television. Or better yet, learn to, to watch soccer. One of the principal reasons I love soccer, both here and at IU, is that there just aren't women. I love it. It's such a freeing thing. (laughs) Now, you say, no, not soccer. I say, okay, yes, soccer can be an enticement of idolatry. Taylor knows the midfielders on Liverpool, let alone Arsenal. What does he know of the Bible? Now, think about it. Use your own quirky method to do what you need to do to instruct your children in in the Bible. Every one of you is different. Do it in your own quirky way. In other words, be a snowflake. Be just as original and unique and like diverse as you can possibly be in instructing your children. In our home, the way we learned to fasten our safety belts when we realized we were never doing it as a family is we had a rule that the last person to have their safety belt fastened could get hit. (laughs) And so the last person to fasten their safety belt would get slapped, hit, backhanded by somebody else in the car. If it was me, I got hit. Nobody ever cried. Nobody ever hurt. It was not malicious, but it was a quirky, idiosyncratic thing that taught everybody to fasten their safety belts. Use that for Scripture. Do weird things. How weird is a plastic little box that has promise verses in it sitting on a dining room table? You know, that was the people that lived in the first 50 years of this past century. My aunt had one of these promise boxes. That's weird. Whatever it is that causes you to learn the Word of God and to teach it to your children, do it. And share your quirky things with each other. You know, be creative. But teach them the Word of God. How well do you need to know the Word of God? Well, much, much better than you know it. I thought about asking you to take out a piece of paper this morning and write down the Ten Commandments. I can absolutely guarantee if I did it that the average number of commandments you know is probably seven or eight. The typical Christian church, they only know five. And I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say we know seven or eight. I guarantee you it wouldn't be eight or nine or nine or ten. Most of you would not be able to list the Ten Commandments. So that's how much we need to know the Bible. Now, one last thing. God is pleased to use both threats of cursings and blessings to get us motivated, right? So there is both honey and vinegar from God. Are you all with me on this? And we can't be people that deny the vinegar its valid place in the tools that God uses, right? He uses it with nations. He uses it with families. He uses it with churches. And we love the vinegar and we love the honey, right? Now, what is the honey with a father? It's come to me in the last six months that I've spent my life trying to correct for my father's mistakes and not celebrating his, 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 his successes. And my father's mistake was discipline. He really abdicated the discipline of the children to my mother. And that is why I spend so much time trying to restore our love for discipline. Because it, it, it has been a lifelong learning curve for me. 
But you know the thing my father did very well? He was a very, very tender and affectionate and loving man. If I went to pick up my dad at O'Hare, where all the suits are, all the start shirts, and he came off the plane out into the concourse, my dad and I hugged each other and kissed each other and just, and I remember I wrote this in an article once. I remember thinking as I would be in my father's arms and he in mine, I remember thinking, all the people watching, eat your hearts out. And this was as, you know, 17, 18 year old, 13 year old, 14, 15. My dad taught us to love and to be affectionate. And people, God has given us arms to be used. God has given us kisses to be used. God has given these things to men. If you go through Scripture, you'll find Scripture over and over and over again shows men kissing each other. Even commands, greet one another with a holy kiss. God has also given us hearts of love so that we'll love our children. In other words, as God promises long life and calves and oil and wine, so a father should be filling the life of his son with affection of his daughter. He should be the one that teaches his daughter that she's beautiful. No boy should ever have a right to teach a Christian daughter that she's beautiful. She should learn that from her father. She should be so confident of her father's love for her and his affection and his gaga towards her that she is inoculated completely against fornication. You know, even the secularists say that the best predictor of fornication in a young woman is touch and affection from her father. You know what else? Every woman here should be healed from all the abuse she's ever suffered because of the relationship she has with the fathers of this church. In other words, our affection shouldn't stop with our homes. It should be so luxurious and so huge and so liberal. (laughs) Why do they get that word? that it should go to all the women of this church with absolute purity. In other words, men, we've got to get out of ourselves and we've got to begin to love. You've got to love. And if you look around, there's a lot to love. When you look at your children and see the blessing that God's given you, your heart will be gaga. You look at that wife and your children see you looking at your wife and saying, I could not have done better. Houses and land are an inheritance from your parents, but a prudent wife is a gift from God. So love your children. Touch them. Guard them. If your daughter starts getting pimples, you be the first one to make fun of her for them. So that she knows that you think she's the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth and she's never worried about her pimples. Because her father adores her. 
Know whether your son is masturbating. Know whether he's looking at pornography. Have the love for your son to have your computers in the kitchen facing the center of the room. Happy Father's Day.